0: Okay, we're going to jump right into this because um, we have a lot that we're going to get through today. And I have no idea where we're going to end yet at this point of the day. I'll have a better idea tomorrow, but you're going to put up with what I have yet today. And then I'm just going to trust that next week, Kim will clean up whatever mess I make today as she continues on throughout the book of Nehemiah next week. Okay, so we are in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. Let me pray and we're going to get right into it. Lord, we're so grateful to be here today, to be into our last quarter of this year. Wow, to thank how you've brought us um, from where we started in September to where we are today in this moment. We thank you that you have been with us, that you have gone before us, and we can come to you in full faith and trust that you will still be with us and you will still go before us. And so we choose to submit to follow you, that you would have your way in our lives this day and this moment as we look into your word. We pray this. In the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to do a Reformation recap. We're going to go with a couple R words here today. I'm going to have some fun. A Reformation recap first. Uh, AS WE GET INTO OUR LAST QUARTER OF THIS SEMESTER, THE LAST HALF OF THIS SEMESTER, SO WE STARTED OFF IN THE BOOK OF EZRA, WE'RE TALKING POST-EXILIC, WE'RE TALKING HOW THE ISRAELITES, THEY WERE IN BABYLON, THEY WERE HELD CAPTIVE, NOW THEY'RE MAKING THEIR RETURN, HAVE MADE THEIR RETURN BACK TO JERUSALEM, THIS RETURN, THIS REBUILDING AND REFORMING THAT WE'VE TALKED ABOUT WITH GOD'S COVENANT PEOPLE. SO THERE WAS A COUPLE OF WAVES, we can put up our timeline up there. There was a couple of waves. How many waves were there of returning of people? Three. Do you remember? Uh, okay, great. Do you remember the person who led the first wave? Do you remember the name? Anybody? It starts with the letter Z. not Zechariah. Zer, Zer, I heard a mumble. Zerubbabel. Yes, right on, Zerubbabel. Okay, so he re- rebuilt the temple and the altar And there was this reformation back to submission to Yahweh as their Lord, as uh, their God. Then Ezra brought about the second wave, and he was rebuilding this covenant community, this reformation of culture and commitment. And we began our series out of the passage in Ezra chapter 7, that Ezra had devoted himself to study, to obeying, and to teaching uh, the law of God. And then we have been into the story of Nehemiah as he's been rebuilding the wall. And that Reformation is a holistic life surrendered. It's about character development, but that it should reflect on how we revere God's Word, how we um, treat people, how we spend our money, uh, and what we value. So we've been talking that Reformation is this work below the waterline. We've talked about that it is this building this strength, deepening uh, or developing this weight internally to withstand temptation, oppression, the storms of life. And that it isn't just about self-care, but it's about soul care. So we've been talking about the soul, that inner working, that inner spot where the spirit resides. So some other thoughts that we've had regarding Reformation that uh, points that we've had you potentially write down is that uh, Reformation begins with prayer. We've seen the example of prayer. Through Ezra, we've seen the clear example of prayer with Nehemiah, that he began everything first and foremost by going to the Lord. It's uh, been encouraging even with our year. That's how we started our year, was with prayer, as we walked through the prayer covenant together in the first semester. That Reformation isn't meant to be done alone, and we're going to see that clearly today in chapter 8. We also know that Reformation is not everyone's goal. Reformation is about character development and that it is good, hard work, that God desires to reform you so that he will succeed through you. It's been another focus of ours, and that Reformation is a deep devotion to God's word. And Kim had a couple of questions a few weeks ago, so I thought, man, I want to have a couple of questions for today's sermon Uh, But you know what? I couldn't come up with questions that were better than Kim's questions from two weeks ago. So I'm straight up stealing them because they apply so well again to our passage today. Do you remember what those questions are? Anyone want to flip back on a page in their journal to see what those questions were and just shout them out. Anyone? Maybe they weren't so good. They're great. I'll, I'll remind you if you can't find it. What is your relationship with the Word of God? This is her first question. Write it down. What is your relationship with the Word of God? And the second one is, am I allowing the Word of God to affect my thoughts and behaviors? Am I allowing the Word of God to affect my thoughts and behaviors? Okay, so we have, in our story so far, we've returned. Here's my R letters for you. This is just for fun. They have returned. We've talked about reforming. We've talked about rebuilding. And now today we're going to talk about Israel's response. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is the Reformation response. And we're going to go through the chapter. So open your Bibles up to chapter 8. Keep it open. Open up version on your phone if you've got your phone with you and not a physical Bible. Keep it open to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to go through this chapter together verse by verse. Rather than me reading the whole thing, we'll just work our way strategically through it. And we'll focus on Israel's response uh, in this chapter. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. You guys ready? Okay, Awesome. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So right at the get-go, first verse, our first point, is that all the people came together as one. That was their response, is that they came together, united together. What a dream, right? Remember those days? When we could all be together, pre-COVID days, we're just talking over here that it was like exactly a year ago. It was tomorrow. is exactly a year ago since our last Wednesday night chapel that we've had in this room. So like, remember those days? And didn't we take a lot of stuff for granted? <laughs> Yikes. But not only were they together, the focus is, is that they were together as one, that they were united And to me, I think of right away as the picture in Acts, in the day of Pentecost, as all the believers were together. And as in the day of Pentecost, it was the birth of something new, the beginning of something new with the church. Here it's like, okay, the wall has been rebuilt. Another time of a restart, a a forming of something beginning new, and they were all together as one. They were united. So yes, the wall was complete, but there was still rebuilding to be done in their hearts. And uh, they're doing a recommitment again to the Word of God. So this is awesome. They were united. Okay? They they didn't have to be together physically uh, to be united. It isn't based on proximity, but it's based on purpose. So we may not be able to be united physically together in proximity, but we can still be united and as one on purpose and uh, excited. I'm excited about this chapter. Okay, so Israel's focus here is turning back to the law and to its obedience and they're to, they're about to relearn the benefits of a proper relationship to the law of God not just knowing it but understanding it so verse 2 so on the first day of the 7th month Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So first they gathered, and now their response is that they listened attentively to the word of God. In verses 2 and verse 3, it actually says twice that both men and women who were there, I love the value placed on it, that they understood. Those could understand that the law of God were there to not just hear it, but to understand what is being spoken. There's a strong emphasis that we've seen in the book of Nehemiah, and we'll see it multiple times today, on the law, the Word of God as a key component to spiritual renewal. We, we cannot flippantly or nonchalantly use the Word of God if we truly want to experience a life change with the Lord. We can't be flippant about it. We can't be nonchalant about it. The, the Israelites were revering the word of God. They were committed to it as we'll see here in this moment, anyways. We see when they're flippant and when they're nonchalant with it, what happens. We've seen that in our lives too, when we kind of just breeze by, quick whatever. And there isn't this deep submission and obedience and reverence to the word of God. Here they stood for six hours, like from daylight till noon. So essentially 6 a.m to noon, they stood listening to Ezra, reading out the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the law, going through some of the boring stuff. They stood there and they listened. I love that. They respected not only the author, but the authority of the word too. Psalm 1, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. It says, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. This person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You see the the distinction? Those who meditate, the righteous, those who delight, they're obedient to the word of God, will result in in life-giving fruit and reformation in our hearts and experience with the Lord. The neglect will lead to destruction. And this too fulfills where we started our semester in Ezra chapter 7, where he devoted himself to study, to obeying, and to teaching. Here we get to see now Ezra teaching this word, some probably roughly around 13 years later from that passage to this moment. We see now the physical example of him teaching as he devoted himself for years and years and years, now having the opportunity to teach the law. So verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform, built for the occasion. He's the first soapbox preacher. Okay, and here we go. We're going to go through some names together. Beside him, on his right, stood Matt, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his left was Pediah, Mishael, uh, Milchajah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Israelites' response here is a physical one. They stood up as they heard the law. They responded by lifting of their hands, by praising, amen, amen. And they bowed down in worship to the Lord with their faces to the ground. We've talked how reformation is this uh, work below the waterline, this internal, the unseen level, but true reformation of the heart will reflect on the outer parts of our lives. What happens inside will be exposed and show, will bubble over on the outside expression of our lives, including physical expressions of surrender, of thanksgiving, and of praise. Last semester in one of our uh, prayer covenant sermons, I talked about God's love language, and I talked about uh, the word praise throughout the book of Psalm, and I looked at seven different Hebrew definitions of our English word that we just kind of sum up lumped together in the word praise. And many of them included a physical expression of either like bowing down or hands raised or hands surrendered out to the sides. And there's this physical expression of surrender, of of thanksgiving. Psalm 119 says, And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 141 says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. The Israelites had a deep respect in this moment, specifically, we see for the law, for the Word of God. What is your relationship with the Word of God? We will not experience spiritual renewal until we develop a deep reverence for the word of God. It will be limited. It will be capped. They stood. They lifted their hands. They praised. And they bowed down in worship. Verse 7. We'll do some more names here. Jeshua, or sorry, the Levites. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah. Jamin, love that, Acab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masiah, Kilaita, Azariah, Josebad, Hanan, and Pellaiiah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. This word understood is becoming a theme in this chapter. It's a It's an emphasis in the concept of it It isn't just being read aloud so people would hear it, but that they are understanding it. And we're seeing this strategy now within the leadership. That as Ezra spoke, now there are other leaders who are also communicating this to other Israelites and allowing them to get to a place where they would explain it and understand it. So these special men were appointed to help in bringing understanding. So the response was that people understood what was being read understanding, proper exegesis needs to be our relationship with the authority of Scripture, both personally and publicly. And I love the emphasis, okay? I love the emphasis on Scripture in this book. And I've shared my concerns before about our culture and our lack of emphasis in Scripture to just to be a part of our regular habits and rhythms of the day. I've shared my concerns how uh, too often I hear um, students, people in my life, who talk more about songs and sermons than they do scripture. And I have a concern for that. I have a concern that with those songs and those sermons, yes, they may be focused on the Word of God, uh, but let's be honest, they're they're professional communicators, they're artists, and they produce... um, content in a way to emotionally draw people in. Not a negative tool, but if that is the goal of their sermon and of their song, we lose the focus of Scripture. And what it does is it unconsciously, like it unintendedly teaches us that in those moments where our emotions are drawn out and brought towards this place, that that is the moment in where I experienced the Lord and it's only when those emotions are heightened or those emotions are drawn out that is the deep moment in where the Lord is working in my life, and that is just not biblically true. Yes, he may be in those moments, but he is also in those dark moments, those desperate moments, those feelings of being forsaken. If we truly believe that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere that we need to learn that truthfully through Scripture and not just through someone's song or someone's sermon. We're his mobile temples, which he resides inside of us wherever we go. And to those who have a conviction to teach Scripture, let me encourage you. Lead the people to understanding Scripture. Now, I like to use some Alliteration in some of my points. It's fun, right? All these R words that we're using, I think it's fun because it's a tool to help people have an easier time remembering what you're talking about. But if we just lead them to a memorable quote or three words that start with the same letters, but they don't have a greater understanding of God's word, we've failed. If we amuse and if we just even motivate them to action, yet there still isn't a deeper understanding of God's word, we have failed. Have you ever set up a friendship before? Like whether it could be a dating relationship or just a friendship. Anybody ever just set up two people to becoming good friends? Okay, so uh, my wife Rebecca and I, we take a lot of like joy in setting like people up uh, in friends. It's one of our favorite things to do when we converse, just the two of us of like, hey, this person and this person would be such good friends together. We've actually set up a few marriages of friends of ours, uh, because we liked both people and we wanted to hang out with them more. So we just like got them to get together. And now we get to hang out with them often pre-COVID. Anyways, they're married, they have kids now, and it's wonderful. And we kind of take this little bit of like, uh, oh, yeah, we were part of that. That's really fun. That's really cool. It's also one of my favorite things to do just in friendships. It was one of my favorite things to do as a youth pastor is to take like a 14-year-old awkward kid and have him hang out with another 14-year-old awkward kid. And they're just awkward together, but they get each other. And it's so wonderful. It was one of my favorite things to do as a youth pastor. I think I probably did that with Brad with so many people, right? I just the awkward kid at 14 years old with another awkward kid, right? <laughs> I also love doing it as a campus pastor. We've had the opportunity this year to see freshmen and other people meet others. And just by putting them into the same location and having them just kind of go at it and learn about each other, it's a lot of fun. I believe preaching is very similar to that concept. That it's our responsibility is you teach scripture, is that you get to take someone And allow them to build a relationship with Scripture and with Jesus. So here's the thing that sometimes with friendships, that's difficult. Sometimes you can put two people together and they're meeting each other and it's this newfound friendship and it's fun. But then they actually get to the place where they're so closely connected where they don't need you anymore. And it's sort of like a, oh, oh, wait. (laughs) Wait a second. I'm the one who created this thing, not you guys. And yet they become so close where you're not needed. That's hard, and it kind of affects our pride a little bit. I think teaching Scripture is very similar to that as well, that we develop a relationship of love and of trust between someone and Jesus to the point where they actually don't need us anymore. Now, as pastors, we still get to be there to bring encouragement and love and care in some direction, but there isn't the need. And that's hard. That's hard on the ego. But my goodness, is it godly and is it biblical, and is it right, as we build a trust relationship to allow the Holy Spirit to work for the people in which you're speaking or preaching to. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is our strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. See the word understood again, the emphasis on it. I can only imagine in this moment what it would have been like, right? And I like to play a little bit with scripture and my imagination goes and I just always wonder what it would have been like in this moment. As as the word is being spoken over, people for decades, for generations, wouldn't have been following God's law, wouldn't have been following God's rule, so they hear this, and there's conviction that comes over their lives. And so the response to the Israelites is that they weep in this moment, right? They're crying out, and we've experienced that, maybe you've experienced in your life, the conviction of God, the Spirit speaking to you, and it responds, or we respond in mourning, and weeping, and in crying, okay? I love The leader's response in this. So, Nehemiah, the governor, right? We've heard his story, okay? Uh, He is trekked back to Jerusalem. He's brought people with him. He's building the wall. He's yelling at people in chapter five, as we went through last or two weeks ago with Kim. Uh, He's telling people to stand and fight, and he's loud and he's gruff and he's doing this. And then he sees a bunch of people crying, and he's like, What is going on here? I've had this moment. (laughs) in youth ministry and in campus ministry where something's going on and you're talking about the blessed goodness and glory of God and people are like, ah, and just crying. And I'm like, wait a second, this is a reason to celebrate here. And here's Nehemiah saying, hold the phone, stop crying, go and eat and drink and share with people and have a good time. And then you see here in verse 11, the pastors, the Levites, calmed all the people, (laughs) calmed them down and said, be still, be still. For this day is holy, do not grieve. Fun to play with it, but there is truth to this point that so often we just respond with weeping and conviction and crying. Conviction is great. Conviction is good. We should allow conviction of the Spirit into our lives. It brings correction. It brings reproof, what's taking place here in the Israelites. But we can also take great joy, great joy, knowing that when we are convicted of sin, God is doing a work in us. We're actually understanding his word. Conviction is taking place. That means there's been a revelation of understanding inside of us for change to take place. And our knowledge of sin should never be greater than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior, and it can cause us to rejoice knowing that the Spirit is bringing conviction. So nothing wrong with weeping. There's a time for it all. But there's also a time of great celebration. To eat is a very spiritual thing. Somebody say amen to that. To drink, to share what we have with other people and enjoy that fellowship is such a deep spiritual habit that we need in our lives. So do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is our strength go enjoy food and sweet drinks and share with those who have nothing. So their response was that they ate and they drank and they celebrated with joy. Verse 13. On the second day of the month... The heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into this hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in their courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. Oh, this speaks to me. They went camping for a week is what they did. They were told, they were informed. This is scriptural in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Okay, multiple festivals are described in chapter 23. This one uh, is known as the festival of shelters or the festival of booths. Okay, Leviticus 23, 42, 47 says this. For seven days, you must live outside in little shelters All native born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, Moses telling the Israelites as you get into Canaan, as you get into the promised land, the Lord is saying that we must live in shelters for a week to remind us of our ancestors who have gone before us. And the faithfulness of God, bringing them through the journey of the desert. Salvation out of slavery in Egypt, journeying with them through the desert into a place of the promised land. And so uh, the festival of shelters, the festival of booths, it was the last, fall festi- last festival of the fall, and it ended the agricultural year. And it was a time to thank God for his provision of that year, and it was to remind the next generation of children of the Israelites of what God has done in the past. Moses warned the Israelites to not forget how God was the one who redeemed them out of slavery, and that they were to live in the booths for a week to remind them that their success was not on their own efforts, but wholly on the account of the Lord. And so they would give up. They would give up the comforts of their home for a week to commemorate God's salvation. A reminder that in order to be redeemed, that the people of God must surrender certain things, ultimately our whole life. That we must give up on self-reliance. To turn from the comforts of sin that can come be idols in our lives. And Christians still do this today. Lent, we're actually in the season of Lent right now, which is very much similar to this concept, where you were to give up something so that we can understand and to tell ourselves the dependency is not on this item, this thing, this food, this beverage, whatever it may be, but my de- dependency on life is on Christ alone. And so it's this giving up, this renouncing, this taking away something that brings comfort to remind ourselves, no, I depend on the Lord, and he is faithful in the past, and he will be faithful again in my future. So they went camping for a week <laughs> to remember God's faithfulness. They would, they would make these, these huts, these booths in their front yards. Their house was like right there, and yet for a week they had to camp. It was awesome. The person who had the tent out over here, you can't do that here. <laughs> there was a tent out on this side of the chapel. We're not allowed to do that here, unfortunately. I wish we could. <laughs> but they remembered by giving up. Okay, verse 18. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Day after day, the Israelites established these rhythms. Day after day, they committed themselves to the Word of God and responding to it. Remember these questions? What is my relationship with the Word of God? Am I allowing the Word of God to affect my thoughts and my behaviors? So um, some of you may have heard this already, and I may be sounding like a broken record, but... um, Uh, I've been reading this book called The Deeply Formed Life, uh, author Rich Velotis. and I have just loved uh, reading through this book in the last couple of weeks. I'm a bit of a slow reader, and so it takes me a while, uh, and I've intentionally been going through this slow to take a bit more out of it, and I've just been really enjoying um, his concept, and it's very much along the concept that we've been talking about this semester. It's about living a health or living a life of health and of spiritual renewal deep within our souls. And, and Rich, he's a Puerto Rican pastor in New York City who is Pentecostal and has, has been baptized into the Spirit and speaks in tongues, yet has a, um, a degree in monasticism. And so he's got this like, whole wide experience of like liturgical, traditional uh, spirituality and then experiential Pentecostal spirituality in New York City, Puerto Rican, and just all comes together into what he has written into this book, A Deeply Formed Life. And he says that we're at a rhythm, that our world is out of rhythm, that we need to be reminded that our souls were not created for the kind of speed that we have grown accustomed to in our culture. What would it look like if we lived at a different pace? What were the rhythms that would enable us to live differently, to live deeply connected to God? A lifestyle not dominated by hurry and exhaustion, but of margin and of joy. So the Israelites, their response to all of this is that they developed spiritual rhythms in their day-to-day life. The leaders led. Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites, they led, they led with consistent rhythms each day. For six hours a day they read Scripture during that time. And the people responded with consistent rhythms. They gathered. They read scripture. They revered the word of God by standing, by raising hands, by bowing down, by praising. They wept. They celebrated. They ate. They drank. They shared food with others. They were silent. They remembered holy days. And they changed their regular routines and went without to remember God's faithfulness in their lives. They established a rhythm, a spiritual routine and rhythm into their lives to remind themselves of the faithfulness of God. The leaders saw this, the need for spiritual rhythms in the lives of the Israelites. And God saw that his people were out of rhythm. And I believe the same is today. That we're out of rhythm. As long as we remain enslaved to a culture of speed, to a culture of superficiality and distractions, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. And Rich says in his book that a deeply formed life takes seriously the call of renunciation, of a regularly formed by the pace, or sorry, we are regularly formed by the pace and noise and values of our society but to be deeply formed is to come back to a regularly different rhythm, one marked by communion, reflection, and repentance. And Rich says it's, it's uh, and I agree, it's not a matter of um, environment. It's a, it's a matter of our heart. He says he lives in an apartment in downtown Queens in New York City where the pace of life is chaotic as chaotic could be. And we often use excuses of, oh, I'm too busy, I don't have time for this, I have to do this, I'm too busy, there's too much going on in my schedule. But we just lie to ourselves because for the last year now, our schedules have opened up widely, yet our spiritual life is still just as starving. There's this picture in this book, and I'll, I'll finish with, uh, with this. He says, um, have you ever thought of the picture of how a person could die in the middle of a supermarket when they're locked inside all night? And to think that how could someone actually die if they're locked into a supermarket? Wouldn't that be impossible? And he said, yes, but that picture is how we as Christians are living our spiritual lives every single day. He says, Rich says, whether we know it or not, we are locked inside a supermarket of God's abundant life and love that is available to us at all times, and yet we are starving because we are out of rhythm. We're out of sync. The Pentecostal pastor understands the the need for regular rhythm, habit, and structure of time with the Lord. And we began this series out of the book of Ezra, and we talked about how he devoted himself, not just trying, but training, developing a rhythm in his life where he will learn and study and obey before he teaches. And can I encourage you, the need for deep, developed spiritual rhythms in your life, a reformed life, a deeply formed life, it's not possible without an intentional reordering of our lives. So I want to finish with an um, example of what I personally am doing in my life. Not perfect, but I'm trying, practicing it. And I would encourage you to do the same. So my day, this is the classic saying, my day doesn't begin in the morning, it begins the night before. It truly, truly does begin the night before. So I like a clean environment and a clean space. And if, if it's clean and just at least order and, and neat somewhat, um, my body just relaxes more. I'm just more receptive and open and willing. Um, if, if my environment is messy and dirty and cluttered, it's usually a great picture of what's going on inside my life at that moment. So the desk in my office, if you see it messy, just ask me how I'm doing because it's usually not pretty good. Okay? <laughs> if it's clean, then I'm doing all right. Um, So I have two boys at home. So every evening before they go to bed, they have to clean up all their toys in the living room because I can't have those toys sitting in the middle of the living room. Um, Not just because I'll step on them, but because my devotion life will suck if their toys uh, are in the living room floor. So they clean up their toys and then I do a bit of a tidy up of the living room specific and then the sink uh, and the dishes in the sink. This is just what I do. This is how I, the rhythms I've created in my life so that by the time I go to bed, the, the living room and the kitchen area is tidy and clean so that the next morning I get up at six and I spend time with the Lord. I don't have a specific, this is exactly what I do every single morning, but I have kind of three things that I get, kind of just rotate through whatever I feel like in that morning. Most of the time it is coffee and scripture reading and then I, uh, I pray internally. Sometimes I pace back and forth from my living room and my kitchen. Uh, I don't like to sit and read my Bible for some reason in the morning. I just want to be standing up and walking around. So I usually perch it on like the ledge of my uh, fireplace and I, I read it and I read through and then I pace back and forth and I pray. That's my spiritual, main spiritual rhythm of the morning. Some mornings I'll literally just lie on the floor in my living room and pray. Some mornings I'll stretch and um, I will put myself into that yoga child pose um, and like, think in how I'm like bowing down before the Lord. Good physically, good spiritually, right? These are my rhythms of the morning. Then the boys wake up at seven and totally ruin my peace. (laughs) I feed them breakfast. I get their teeth brushed, get them changed for school, get ready for work, go to work. Um, I, I right now I'm keeping my Bible open on my desk at all times because it is an easier way in which that I'll just say, hey, maybe I'll just read something. So I might read something further throughout the day uh, in my Bible. Um, every day when we get home, we have dinner. My family and I, we do a devotion at dinner, doing the classic family together devotion. And what's fun right now is we're actually going through the book of Nehemiah and our family devotion. So I'm like, hey, I'm preaching on that scripture passage. And it's been a lot of fun. So every day uh, we do this. Uh, Simeon is the one who prays usually uh, before dinner and for our devotion, too, because he just loves to pray. And the four-year-old is the cutest thing ever when they pray. So, um, so we pray. And um, as we put them to bed, Rebecca and I will sit together. We'll have our, like, club soda with lime, and it's awesome. And, and we'll just talk. Um, and most nights, we'll pray together, and then we'll go off to bed. That's usually how my day goes. On the weekends... Um, We are practicing Sabbath right now. Uh, I have always, um, in some regards, uh, took a Sabbath and just like not working. uh, But I believe there's a difference in taking a Sabbath and practicing the Sabbath. Uh, And so what I mean by that is like taking a Sabbath is just not doing anything and not working and resting. Okay. But practicing the Sabbath is actually in preparation. You have to work harder to really make sure you get the fullness of what you can on the day of Sabbath. So our Sabbath. Is 6 p.m. Saturday night to 6 p.m. Sunday evening. We light a candle at 6 p.m. Uh, and it's either sitting on our table or on this ledge above our sink between the living room and the kitchen. And it's uh, the boys love to be a part of it. And it's just for a reminder for us, okay, that the Lord is light, He is present, He is near, He is with us. And it, even like the fire candlelight kind of calms the place a little bit, right? So it, it helps us in that regards. Uh, and then So all, like, laundry has to be done before 6 p.m. on Saturday. So sometimes Saturday is chaotic because we're trying to get everything done. So the garbage is put away. Recycling is taken out. So there's literally no extra things that we just have to do for that 24-hour period. Uh, And then we make sure that we get outside uh, during some point in that 24-hour period just to enjoy fresh air, uh, to be with each other, and to acknowledge the Lord in nature, which I love to do, and it fills me up. There's also things that we don't do. So spiritual rhythms is, yes, adding things and doing things, but it's also not doing things. So my Sunday night from about 7 p.m., 8 p.m. to Friday about 5, 6 p.m., I don't watch TV right now. I don't watch any Amazon Prime or any Netflix or anything. Uh, So Rebecca and I have a bit of a routine going in our evenings, which are club soda and lime and reading um, and listening to CBC radio in the background because it's awesome. And uh, I sound totally old, but it just is what it is. (laughs) I'm loving it right now. Um, I have, in this season, pushed aside um, social media. I'm not doing that right now. Uh, practicing on that during Lent. There's some stuff for work i got to do with it, but it is what it is. I'm not totally off my phone because I'm playing a lot of cribbage and backgammon right now, uh, which is fun again, but <laughs> trying to remove things from my life, right? Just being honest. Uh, again, no TV football season's is on right now, so that really helps. And uh, then we'll, we'll watch movies together on the weekend or watch a, a, some sports highlights on the weekend, and that's my TV consumption. Uh, Because I want to make sure that I'm reading regularly. I want to make sure that our pace in life is slower than what is the norm in our culture. Those are some of the things that we do. The spiritual rhythms day in and day out, every day that we value, that we hold so close because we believe it connects us closer to the love of the Lord. I do want to say this as we finish. Having spiritual rhythms and habits and disciplines in our life does not make the Lord love us more at all. His love is constant. It is always overflowing, and it is wonderful and life-changing. But having spiritual rhythms in our lives allows us to understand his love for us more. He doesn't love us more, but it allows us to understand, to see things a bit more clearly, that his love is so wonderful and life-changing. So, can I encourage you to create intentional rhythms and patterns in your life so that you can understand and receive His love greater? Let me pray for you. Lord, we acknowledge you as King of our lives, as Lord of this place, as Savior and Redeemer of our souls. And I pray. Lord, that these words, as we went through your scriptures today, as we looked into the example and the response of the Israelites to your word, to the rebuilding of the wall and seeing this reform take place in this community. Lord, may it inspire us today to follow suit, to to birth something new in us potentially if we have been out of rhythm or out of sync with you in recent times that it would draw us back to finding ourselves quiet before you, praying with you, reading your word, uh, sharing time with other people, uh, eating together, being reminded how you provide for us every time we do get to eat. And as we gather and share in that corporate setting, that we would be um, edified and encouraged and built up. God, I pray that your word would, would draw us to obedience that we would respond internally, spiritually, but also physically in praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing to you. Uh, And I also pray, too, as, as we further our walk and journey with you, Holy Spirit, would your conviction come into our lives on a very regular basis, that it would cause, yes, times of weeping, but also great times of celebration and of joy, that we would delight with you, in you, and in your word. I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. Wonderful to see all of you. Enjoy lunch and the rest of your Tuesday.